We are joined this evening by a distinguished panel whose accomplishments are many, as you have read in your program. Suzanne Preston Blier is the Allen Whitehill Clouds Professor of Fine Art and of African American Studies at Harvard University. She has written to great acclaim on a wide range of subjects in the art world and has served as president of the College Art Association and is currently sitting on the board of the National Committee for the History of Art. Stephen Lash, this gentleman right here, is Chairman Emeritus of Christie's Americas. During his 39-year tenure at Christie's, he has been involved with historic and record-setting auctions at the firm. His many philanthropic interests keep him well occupied, as well as his collection of transatlantic passenger steamship memorabilia. Now that's a mouthful. Keely Tomasino is the Associate Curator, Modern and Contemporary Art at the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. He is an advocate of emerging artists and a scholar of the 20th century avant-garde. Our moderator this evening is Murray White, the art critic for the Boston Globe. Prior to coming to Boston only last year, Murray was the long-serving art critic of the Toronto Star. He is also a devotee of contemporary art. As collectors of 17th century Dutch and Flemish painting over 34 years, my husband and I have grappled with this question of what's it worth many, many times. Our discussion this evening will focus on the multiple attributes of a work of art that go into the calculus of its financial worth, but that is often what comes first to mind, whether you are a museum curator, a private collector, or art historian. How many times have Matt and I st stood aghast at auction house estimates, sorry Stephen, or the asking prices that art dealers, without a scintilla of embarrassment, let roll so smoothly off their lips? But before one ever plunges into the mathematical calculation of what it's worth, many other factors must be explored. Is the object authentic? Has it been created entirely by the artist's hand? In the contemporary world, this may be more readily ascertainable, but in the old master world, not so fast. Where does the object fit into the artist's oeuvre? Evaluating works made by living artists is especially challenging. One may say it's the best thing he or she ever created so far. What is the condition? Older works of art, reasonably cared for, have stood the test of time, but it's still a minefield. In the contemporary world, one might wonder what the condition will be in 100 years. Think about delicate, complex collages and sharks in formaldehyde. What is the provenance for older works of art and I dare say newer ones, this is a very important and can definitely impact 
what's it worth? Is the art an achievement of a culture in need of preservation and study? Does the object make an important statement, historical, political, cultural? Does it serve a public purpose? Does the object suffer or benefit from shifting assessments of worth by museums, connoisseurs, critics, scholars, and the public? And finally, what have other examples by the artist sold for recently? So now you've done your homework, you've asked all the right questions, and you're left with lots of yeses, noes, and maybes. So what's it worth? We shall leave these and other questions to our accomplished panel who encounter these vexing issues every day. Thank you. Over to you. Hi there, can everybody hear me all right? Um, so thank you so much for giving us a completely unanswerable question to deal with for the rest of the evening, um, but I guess that's what we're here for. Um, and it is, really, and I think that the interesting thing about all of us coming from very different backgrounds, um, very much in the art world, is that I think, our, I think our experiences inform very different ideas of what value actually is. So instead of talking about what it's worth, we're going to make it even squishier and the, the panel and I are each going to try and talk about what value might actually mean in, in, to them. When they think of value, what does value bring up? Suzanne? Value, um, I would say volatility. Uh, you know, it changes so much uh, over time and the impacts of museums, exhibitions, scholars, circumstances, politics, questions of provenance, taste. Some people have great taste. Uh, that survives long-standing changes in the field at large, but I think that's what's fascinating for me is how frequently it changes and what are the core factors behind it. When I think of value, I think of a work's uh, enduring potential to teach us things about ourselves and about the world around us, and in the case of contemporary art, this is a projection of its ability to continue to do so uh, long into the future. Um. When I think of value, I think of uh, psychic dividends rather than cash dividends. I'm a recycled investment banker. My wife said I used to have a respectable job. Um, but the psychic dividends are all important. It's the successful collectors are the passionate ones. And I think that that's, that answer across the field really is, is more similar than you might guess. Um, but Stephen, we were talking about this backstage, and that is that the psychic dividend is not necessarily what a lot of collectors are thinking about when they're making their purchases. So if you could elaborate a little bit on that um, and that side of the market, you had some wonderful sort of anecdotes that you told us backstage that, that I'd love you to, uh, to reprise here. Sure. Um, I think uh, the starting point is I've noticed over the, these many years that successful collectors often and very inadvertently become successful investors. The flip side of that doesn't work, except possibly in Achilles' field in the area of post-war and contemporary art, 
where uh, there is a certain amount of speculation going on. Um, but my experience has been the collectors buy the right artists and the right painting, the investors buy the right artist and the wrong painting. <laughs> and that's obviously from an investment point of view, but I think, Suzanne and Akili, you're thinking, you're thinking of it almost purely in the psychic dividend point of view when you're thinking about value, but that doesn't mean that either in the academic field or the museum field that you don't have to consider the market value of things. It, it makes acquisition extremely difficult, obviously. Um, I'm sure it makes teaching difficult when the overlay of monetary value intrudes on, on sort of broader conversations about what worth might be. So I'm curious to know sort of what role that plays in, in your fields, even though you don't engage with the market directly. Although, Akili, I suppose you do. But. Yes, I do. I mean. I would simply say um, really valuable works of art are transformative. And I can sense it immediately when I'm standing in front of a classroom. And if I feel comfortable talking on for 15, 20 minutes, 45 minutes about a single work of art, how it's shaped the field, what people have said about it, um, what are the conditions in which it's been made and then reinvented uh, for various circumstances. To my mind, it's that transformative nature of it that really stands out in critical ways and make those objects so frequently uh, discussed in publications and, and other contexts. You, you simply can't get enough of them. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that, I mean, to, just to use a word, endurable too, and enduring, yeah. that enduring sense that seems to yeah. sort of pass generational muster as well. So, um, there's, I think there's certainly a symbiotic relationship between the marketplace and museums, certainly, and also academia. Um, my own experiences, uh, when I was invited to this panel, sort of manifested that because I uh, interned at Christie's under Stevens uh, during his tenure as, as chairman, and I was in the same academic de department uh, that Suzanne currently teaches in. So there is <laughs> there's a lot of value and knowledge um, across the different aspects of the field. Um, and we were talking earlier about how uh, the only time art is on the front page of a newspaper is after an auction. Um, so sales make art history. Mm -hmm. So there really is an interpenetration between the, the, the three aspects of the field. But it's important to focus on what, is, what specifically is making art history and what is making headlines because um, the art market is quirky, and the determinants of value that Susan talked about in her introduction are all important. Provenance, um, condition, uh, quality, fashion, hugely, hugely um, important. Um, but it is, uh, it is a quirky thing, and you've, you've got to... Um, you've got to reconcile yourself to the fact that you're buying something that might be very illiquid. And an important test when you see something is, suppose I can never sell it, or suppose I'll never get my money back. Am I going to be happy? The true collector will be. That's the sign of psychic dividends. And finally, the other analogy that I use is, 
I can walk through our exhibitions. I love doing that. And I can be in foul humor. Everything's gone wrong that day. And you see one object that Suzanne is just talking about. And it's life-changing. It really is. It stops you. And you have fallen in love with that object. And it, it, it is life-changing. Um, the only comparison I can draw is what happens like to me when I hear certain great pieces of music. I love Handel. So when I hear Handel, I feel differently. When I look at Vermeer, I feel differently. The, um, I think kind of going, Stephen, going down the sort of various um, qualifiers, I guess, of, of what we think of as, as what assigns value, uh, one of the, a couple that sort of stuck out with, for me, um, one being fashion, which I think is, <clears throat> excuse me, very, very true. Um, and we were talking about this in the, in the green room a minute ago where you have, you know, value four or five generations ago was slightly easier to figure out because you would have craft and you would have... Um, color and you have various sort of different things that you could actually sort of say, well, this person is a master of something. Then conceptualism comes along and changes all that. Is a revolutionary movement meant to, in fact, sort of deflate the notion of a market at all um, with dematerialized objects who then, of course, have run their course to become incredibly sought after, high value, high dollar value pieces themselves. Um, so this is this is just to say, uh, is is there. Is, is the notion of subversion of value a value in and of itself? It's, uh, I mean, is there, is there an end to this as long as, is, is innovation truly the, the market driver in some ways? Or is, is, is a more crude way to put it is fashion? Well, I think it's important to note that yes, uh, what looks good today might not look good tomorrow. And there are different timelines, uh, different life cycles of value. One generation might highly appreciate a certain uh, artists or group of artists, and the, and it takes several generations before that that group um, comes back into fashion, intellectual fashion or collecting fashion. Um, but from the perspective of a museum, what we try to do is uh, acquire works of art that will have enduring um, value and interest to publics, academics um, that surpass the vicissitudes of, of collecting fashion. Um, I'm not sure. Well, it's, I, I guess it's I, the, the thing that I'm kind of, um, that I'm interested in is when we talked about this too, is there's a symbiotic nature between the market, mm -hmm. the institution, and, and, and the, the academy in many ways, because um, from a market point of view, I mean, certainly being recognized in an institution, being recognized academically is, a, is another way to assign value. Um, so, I guess, the, I guess the question that I'm, I'm trying to ask with that is that maybe these worlds aren't as disparate as we would like them to be. I mean, people in the museum world don't like to talk about the value of things from a money point of view. But as, a, as one, sorry, one, one great art dealer, a friend of mine in Toronto, um, said something that I can never use his name and assign it to him, but he said, we're in the business of high-priced luxury goods. And if we don't sell it, they don't get to keep making it. And I thought that was vulgar as it sounded. It was an interesting way of qualifying how the art world has always worked. If there's not a buyer, then there is no art. Um, so how do, we, how do we get around these sort of perceptions of, you know, money is vulgar, but art is pure? And I think that's a really big question that a lot of people grapple with. I think there's a really interesting mix on this. 
I was recently in Paris at an exhibit where the original cost of the object was included in the tombstone, the label that goes with the work, and increasingly sort of thinking about those things. And I will say, I'm in a field, and I think in a certain sense our fields share a certain amount in common, Akile, in that as a scholar, I have to be a connoisseur because most of the objects in my field are not museum collections. So it's a specialist of one sort or another that really is making that value by identifying the works and the culture and the context. And many of us also are curators of exhibits. I, that's one of the things that uh, I do, among other things, and train students in that way. So I think that it really crosses the kind of historic boundaries. Uh, but at the same time, there are other considerations. We were talking, again, before about insurance. We were talking about the, the kind of crisis in my field around uh, colonialism and what's going to happen with these artworks in the current market and concerns about their return to Africa um, and, and other concerns as well. Um, I think the, uh, the interesting thing to observe in the market is the dominance of quality. Um, we, we all know that the best examples sell well. Not only do they sell well, but they very often will supersede um, changes in taste and fashion, for example. Um, right now, it's fashionable to say the taste is a little bit off of Impressionist art. Um, people are buying contemporary or people are, are buying modern. Um, the truth is, as soon as an outstanding example of an Impressionist uh, painter comes up, it makes a phenomenal price. There's going to be a wonderful Cezanne sold on Monday night, owned by the late Cy Newhouse. The market hasn't seen anything like this in years. It will bring a very good price. Uh, so it's, it's quality, but it's more than quality. It's also um, what we refer to as freshness. The market doesn't like to see, particularly in the traditional areas, and I, I exempt Achille once again, but in the traditional areas, the market doesn't like to see works of art come back too soon. The record prices that you're reading about and that he's writing about... I don't write about auctions, but just so <laughs> uh, you know. Tend to, come, ...tend to come from these rarities that have great, great quality and another feature, freshness. They haven't been seen in the market in years and years and years, and by that I don't mean two years or five years. I mean decades or ever. And then they take the market by surprise and create a fantastic price across virtually every technical line. Well, what we're really talking about is supply and demand. Yeah, but you know, supply and demand is a fascinating thing in the business because the one reason I think the contemporary art market is so hot is because it breaks all the rules that we learned from Samuelson and Econ 101, which was an absence of supply generates demand. 
My theory is in the world of contemporary art, the presence of supply sustains demand. <laughs> it's not a conventional market. <laughs> no. So, Stephen, what about Picasso or the newly, quote-unquote, found Leonardo? There are, there are certain exceptions. Yes, there that, are. That hold this interest, whether it's for questions of charisma or name recognition that, that will simply astound in, in the increasing prices. And, and Picasso himself was very aware of this and really managed throughout his life the economic side of his whole inventory. Yes, I know. I mean, Picasso is an extraordinary and valid case study of um, perfect branding, perfect marketing. But, <laughs> but he, too, is subject to whims of taste and fashion. I remember when, when the Museum of Modern Art had the great Picasso show, I don't know, was it 20 years ago? I can't, I can't remember. Um, but some specialist came up to me afterwards after seeing the show. I said, what did you think? He said, it proved to me that at one time Picasso was a great artist. He was referring to the classical pictures and the blue period and the rose period and everything. But that taste has also changed. And the very works that this particular collector was criticizing were the works of towards the end of Picasso's life, the late 60s, for example, now at the height of fashion. And if anything, the earlier pictures, less fashionable. Well, I think that that raises an interesting point. It's um, one of the one of the questions that Achille had had mentioned to me prior to this beginning was that in museums, coming from a museum point of view, they don't only acquire things; they also deaccession things, um, which I guess is a is a tacit admission that maybe they made the wrong call on the value of something culturally. I mean, that's 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 just a, that's a, a wild guess. I could be wrong, but I'd love to hear from from you about that because you, I mean, only to say that museums don't know everything, and they have to take some chances, too. Well, the way I would simply characterize deaccessioning is when uh, a museum considers a work of art to have, for the, the cost of storing, because presumably this work is not a work that would be on view regularly, um, the cost of storing and maintaining the work exceeds its display value. And in an ideal situation, um, to deaccession a work, it has inherent monetary value that um, can support the acquisition of works that are now deemed more uh, desirable or uh, relevant and hopefully have more enduring um, relevance than the works that are to be deaccessioned. It's not always necessarily an omission of uh, mistake. Um, often there are works that are duplicative that get deaccessioned. Uh, or works that are damaged. Um, there's a, the whole host of reasons that go into that um, decision to deaccession an artwork, and they're not taken lightly. But it's it's indicative of of, a, of a, again a changing sort of perception of, of value, and you know, the pressure on a curator like yourself when making an acquisition is you are acquiring a piece that presumably will be in the collection forever which is a very difficult thing to do. It's the, it's the opposite of being speculative. Or maybe it is being speculative in its own way, isn't it? Well, in contemporary art, yes. And 
I'm glad you brought up speculation because I think that there's a whole history of artists that intentionally try to subvert or parody um, the commodifying forces that affect their, their work. And one example I think of specifically is uh, Marcel Duchamp's, well, first the proposition of the ready-made, which takes a mass-produced object out of the, cir the circulation of objects and elevates it to the status of a work of art simply because it was chosen by someone with the status of an artist, um, which completely subverts uh, notion, conventional notions of value. Uh, and later on, Duchamp actually uh, created works of art that were meant to parody financial instruments. So I'm thinking of uh, a work like Zank Check, which was a forged check that Duchamp meticulously drew, uh, drawing on an account from a, a non-existing bank to pay his doctor, Zank, his uh, uh, dentist, Zank. Or Monte Carlo, Monte Carlo Bond, which was uh, a paper bond that Duchamp issued in order to raise funds to gamble money at Monte Carlo. Um, and he admittedly never made any money of, of his gambling. Um, which, are, which are brilliant ideas, and so we're not buying the object at this point, which are now obviously worth a great deal of money right, if they were right. to come to auction. Yeah. Interesting. Trump actually yeah. bought that false check back from his dentist for more right. than the amount that he wrote the check out for. <laughs> I'm sure he could pay his dental bill many times over after that. Yeah. Um, but it, but that, even, even that is interesting, even a subversion of the traditional notion of value then ends up having conventional value. Right, right. There are numerous cases of this. Artists uh, intentionally selling things that don't have any substance. Uh, Eve Klein selling air. And what remains now is the certificate of that exchange. And these certificates or other forms of documentation of performances get fetishized to the point that they become objects of extreme yeah. value, which well, is kind of sad in a way. Well, this is, but this is the interesting thing. I mean, uh, Lawrence Wiener saw LeWitt selling instructions. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, spray paint the floor for 27 seconds with red spray paint number 12, and that is a work of art by me. I mean, these are, these are ultimately sort of, they're critical pieces of what at the time was an art world that ran amok, but then they become kind of co-opted by that same machine. Yeah. Stephen, I'm interested in what you think of that. Well, um, I don't get it. I mean, this, this whole idea of conceptual art, maybe, you know, I'm just too traditional. Um, I do think uh, the one thing I would like to add to this interesting conversation is um, the dilemma that collectors have today who very often think of themselves not as owners but as stewards and what do they do with their collection. And the concern that consistently arises, particularly among major collectors who, who bought with knowledge and advice and passion and wisdom, is what am I going to do with my art? Do I want to give it to some mega institution and have it be in the basement for years and years? Or what, are there other alternatives? Two collectors in the last year who are very significant players have raised this and said, can't there be a trust or an institution, a Kunsthalle, if you will, where art is rotated constantly and you take the, um, the individual works 
that can't be on view at the wonderful MFA here or the wonderful Met in New York or you name it, the fog even, perhaps, and uh, get them exposed because art should be seen and, and appreciated. Excuse me. No, it's a, it's a very interesting point, and I think it, part of it, part of the answer to that has been the rise of the private museum as well, where collectors like Eli Broad have decided that I'm not going to donate any of my collection, partly for those reasons, mm -hmm. because it will go in the basement somewhere and, and nobody will ever see it, and I will build my own Diller and Scafidio building in downtown Los Angeles to house it, which I'm sure is a phenomenon that produces anxiety in, in people like yourself, Akili, because it means you're competing now. Right. We, we already can't compete with them. Um, well, talk a little bit about that. I think that's interesting for people so who... I think there, there's a lot of consequences to the inability of institutions to compete in the marketplace at the rate that private collectors can. Not only um, does it prevent potential acquisitions that um, would be transformative for institutions and for their publics, but sometimes the astronomical price of artworks by, say, an artist like... Jean-Michel Basquiat can be so so high that um, it's impossible for institutions to assemble several artworks under the same roof because insurance values are too high for any institution to sustain, um, even with government indemnity. And that's, I think that's that's an, that's a very interesting thing about how museums function is that ultimately collections are now built of significant objects are largely built through donation. And Suzanne, you raised this question um, as well, and one of the questions you had sent earlier was that, you know, when collections are being built largely by donation by very generous collectors, it does mean that the institution is le is steering its collecting gen agenda a little bit less than it otherwise might be. Um, and I'm interested to hear from both of you as to how that maybe turns that, that display and collecting agenda towards a certain kind of display and away from, you know, a more sort of, uh, a display that's sort of more predicated on discovering new things. This, this is really a, a key question. The financing of museums has really changed. Take this off and speak to it. Yeah, maybe I'll share that with you. Um, the financing of museums has changed dramatically. Uh, in the last few years, uh, in part having to do with taxes and um, um, a lowering of taxes and therefore the need for tax-deductible um, donations to uh, museums and other entities, but also the decrease in funding at the federal level and the state level and otherwise. And sometimes one gets into really interesting and complex issues around uh, museum boards, uh, people who are on those boards, the areas that they're collecting, and for example, the Metropolitan Museum of Art is, is one institution that's gone through some uh, changes. Um, if the majority of uh, collectors are really interested in contemporary art and the uh, 95, 98% of the collection is in historical fields, how do these particular fields keep getting funded and supported in the museum at large. Some museums have done away with, largely with curatorial staff. Mm -hmm. uh, Brooklyn Museum is one, Salem is another, and simply focusing on you know, great exhibits that are gonna draw in crowds, but a lot of these have major ramifications. Uh, and even in the, the world of um, exhibition publishing, 
um, the Museum for African Art in New York had a stellar um, set of exhibits and donors and board members, but at the point when that museum sought to uh, exhibit contemporary African art, there was a kind of pulling back because most of those collections were in the traditional area. Uh, and then many of the exhibits were including, you know, objects from these various uh, board members and donors and others. And the minute you're exhibiting a work of art and the minute you're showing and showcasing it in an exhibit, the values increase exponentially. I think it's a positive thing. I don't think there's there's anything necessarily wrong with it per se, but there there are boundaries that are crossed, and and it can be quite complex. The primitivism show at MoMA was an example of that because Bill Rubin was a major collector of African art, and so that kind of entered into the um, subterranean discussion of that particular exhibit and its problems in some ways. Kill you may or may not want to respond to that. <laughs> well, I would just say that uh, museum collections have always been shaped by the collections of private collectors. So um, there's never really been a complete division between uh, the two realms. And in, museums are founded on private collections. So really, it becomes a matter of of, of the of the creativity and the and the and the the intellect, I guess, of the curator to sort of figure out what to do with these things that come from all kinds of different sources, with all kinds of different agendas. Right. And that's, that's probably heightened in, in this era of a contemporary art market run completely amok. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, the challenge is to find ways to convince collectors of the importance of the symbiotic relationship between museums, institutions, and uh, their own interests. I mean, for example, are, you probably think the commercial world and the museum world are, are really very far apart and we're not because what I'm hearing here and what I'm reminded is how important expertise is. What drives a place like Christie's and what drives um, the Museum of Fine Arts is the, the expertise of the specialists, the curators, and have no doubt about it. And we can't be um, unduly influenced by purely commercial judgments. It's very interesting. The curators and the specialists make the right business judgments, whether it's in the context of an auction house or a museum. We have to listen to them. Yep. I would just echo that there's uh, different kinds of expertise that is valuable in all three sectors of the uh, art world, which I learned firsthand when I was an intern at Christie's. There's there's things that Christie specialists know that most curators don't. Like most institutional curators don't ever touch a painting. Christie's auction house specialists pick up paintings all the time, tap the surfaces. I don't know when a painting is lined versus unlined. I bet Stephen does. Um, I know people who do. <laughs> And I, th I, th I think the, um, does this work now? I think so. Good. So, and, I, and I think the nature of that expertise, the curatorial intervention has changed as well. There are different kinds of curators now at Salem and at Brooklyn than before. And I, I do think that as in the academy, as in expertise in the field of art history more generally, 
curators also need to broaden and become more generalized in a sense because I think it's in that uh, making of one's expertise more complicated and richer that you're going to get interesting conversations going around objects and um, their um, engagement within the museum itself. And I'll give an example of the Baltimore Museum of Art where one of my students is a recently appointed curator and the director there is really on a mission to transform the museum and to take objects from their current silos of 19th century and I mean, na name your field and period and is really trying to get both the curators and uh, the public to come in and think about things in a new way. And so, for example, putting uh, uh, an exhibition of Congo uh, textiles adjacent to a Matisse, uh, they have one of the finest collections of Matisse anywhere, and he loved Cuba art. So why silo those two areas mm -hmm. when uh, in the early 20th century these were part of the same really vocabulary and set of tastes and interests. At the same time, he's really actively undertaken the accessioning with the idea that at the time the museum was um, really built in terms of its collections, there were different sets of curators and interests, and we have to find those spaces uh, around which um, one can grow in new areas, African-American, African, otherwise, and have these works in conversation with each other, which is why I like this idea of a Kunsthall, a, a hall of art, or leases, so that we can, and I think really this is the future, and as an Africanist, I think one of my hopes is that we find ways of getting museums here and in Europe to intersect with museums in Africa with the exchange of objects, and not just African ones. They want to see the Impressionist works, and they want to see others so that there, there are many ways in which we can actually create a global museum. Malraux talked about this in, in, in a certain sense, with a museum without walls as a place where we can experience things, and, and we can do it in the public as well, out of doors. Um, not just uh, in the walls of a museum. Please go ahead. No, I was just going to say, this concept of silos is hugely important because historically the art world has been divided into ver a series of very different worlds that didn't necessarily interact. And the market has changed. Now there's a huge group of important buyers out there today who don't buy purely Impressionist and modern paintings or old master paintings. They buy masterpieces. And we talk a lot in the office about the masterpiece buyers. This is particularly true of the new buyers that have appeared in the market. America is still um, the most important art market in the world, but it's not so dominant, it's, the world is sort of divided one-third the U.S., one-third Asia, one-third Europe. But what is interesting is in the new markets, like in Asia and in the Middle East, you see buyers who are buying across many uh, specialized lines. Uh, I was shocked um, to observe maybe five years ago, the Chinese made this 
dramatic entry into the market, and they started going to London and New York and buying back works of art that had been exported 150 years ago. So it started with their local work, their, their nationalistic inspiration. But it quickly morphed into a market for masterpieces. And for example, they've paid world record prices or bid at world record levels, let me say, for old master paintings, including that Leonardo da Vinci last year that sold for $450 million. Um, or a Bach musical manuscript, or a painting by Peter Paul Rubens that's huge. I mean, it would fit in this room, but not many New York apartments. And it's sort of an Old Testament subject. So whence the appeal to the Chinese market? It's that it's a masterpiece. So that what Suzanne's saying is spot on because this is where a direction the market's moving in. It's interesting. When, when you say, when we're talking about masterpieces, we're talking about historical masterpieces. I mean, some people might describe Warhol as a master of a certain kind, or Rauschenberg as a master of a yes. certain kind. Um, and I think that's kind of germane to what you were saying earlier, Suzanne, because we can go back to the Baltimore Museum and talk about their deaccession program. Um, what they were deaccessioning were exact, exactly those, those um, postmodern masters, Warhol, Rauschenberg, to make way for the new, to make way for artists of color, to make way for more female artists. And I think that's a, that's a really interesting kind of dynamic that we're talking about when you're talking about what is, what is value. And the Baltimore Museum saw a dollar value for some of the works that they had, but they saw an intrinsic sort of humanistic value in getting rid of them. Right, and, and a recognition that museums are part of the communities in which they sit. And Baltimore is Baltimore, and finding, it's got, you know, several great museums, but finding a closer fit between the actual public audience. I also think it, it, it really is striking because it calls for really great, innovative, curatorial engagement. I, I have yet to uh, go up to see the new Dartmouth installation. I, I can't wait. I, I've seen photographs, but it looks to be tremendously it's exciting. It's fantastic. Is the, it? the European section is a tiny little pocket in the corner. I mean, that's my opinion. It's fantastic. Some people may not show uh, it. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's really t being bold and rethinking their great contemporary African works, etc. And I think it's part of rethinking the world at key moments. I mean, the Boston Athenaeum is part of a similar history. I, I wasn't going to bring this up, but in the 1890s, with the, that's when most of our fields were developed, art history, anthropology, etc. The Boston Athenaeum, the Boston Museum of Foreign Arts, there's six or seven different of these um, scholarly and other associations, gave up voluntarily their collections of Native American, um, African, Oceanic, and some Asian works to the Peabody Museum at Harvard. And they all came in around the same time with the idea that in some way the science of anthropology was going to better care for them. And of course, then they go into the collections to be not seen so much. And in a certain sense, it, was it, was, it made sense uh, because there you could get experts in, in these areas, although the, the last curator of African art uh, at the Peabody Museum died in 1911, and that's over a century ago, just 
so that you know and I know. Uh, but also, it's a loss here because one of the ways that these works were exhibited was in a comparative way with shoes from, you know, different cultures or uh, horse bridles or many other different ways, hats, costume. So you were really, much as in biology, much as in science, you were trained with an expertise to look and compare and to not really value one as being... Uh, in a higher sort of uh, level because it was from X or Y period of culture, you were really looking at the details. And I think that was a loss. It, it, I mean, it's great to have them all in one place, uh, but, uh, you know, I think concerns change over time in the way we think about the world, and I think this is a positive step. I mean, it, obviously we're going to deaccession the one problematic work or the one right work we should never should have done and you'll live to hear about it for the rest of your life but um, we won't remember the the new things that were able to come in. We're, we're getting close to the end of our time here I believe, am I right about that? So we might have um, time for one more question so we can maybe have one more very broad kind of cosmic discussion and just coming back to value one more time. Um, is this idea of a psychic value versus a monetary value, must they be mutually exclusive? Um, and do they in any way color, does the, does the monetary value color in any way what you do when you're thinking about work from your point of view? And does the scholarly value something color what you do when you're, when you're thinking about it from a, a client perspective? I'll, I'll try starting out on that. I mean, look, obviously the monetary value is a huge issue for us. We're not, um, we're dealing with the end of the chain of ownership, if you will. And some people have bought very, very wisely, and we get very excited when a masterpiece like that Cezanne uh, that I mentioned come up. Um, but uh, the monetary value has to be uh, a fact of life. But it's very interesting. Um, there's a funny story. There, were, there was a wonderful couple in New York called Sally and Victor Gans who um, got very interested in Picasso in, uh, when they became engaged in 1940. And they were what we call in my family comfortably off. They weren't really rich. But whatever money they had, they spent on Picasso. And this went on and on for years. And finally, um, the, collection, the collection was sold and it had a huge, huge uh, monetary value. So much so that when the son delivered a memorial for his mother, he said he was invited out to dinner when he was a 12-year-old. This is what we do in New York. And uh, he was told by his mother, when you leave, make sure you thank your hostess, and you have to do one thing more. You have to have noticed something in the house and comment on it. And he said, thank you very much. I had a lovely evening, but tell me something. If you don't hang your Picassos in the dining room, where are they? Ah, that's great. So it all depends on what you can afford, I guess. 
Well, it's it's hard to top that. I, I was simply sorry, Stephen. You should have gone last. I was trying. Really. Uh, I think we can I think the the where these two come together, the psychic uh, value and the material value, is an Instagram. I mean, I I've just finished this book on Picasso's Demoiselle. He was using illustrated books, not the Trocadero, and it changes the whole meaning of the canvas. Uh, in really critical ways, but I go to look at the painting and you know I'm, I'm having to wait practically in line for 45 minutes to sort of steal in and and all of the Instagram So so I would say that we could probably and the next nearest one is starry night in and you know uh, uh, one um, a gallery over so I think there's that quality of star power that comes with it um, but I also think that What's really remarkable, I actually believe that some people have extraordinary taste. And I think others, even colleagues of mine, you know, we, we say they have a wooden eye. Uh, you know, they, they're great scholars, but okay, fine. You know, we're not going to really look at what you're doing. And it's a, it's a kind of combination of things. I, I do think that some works just stand out for whatever reason. And I'll say, and this, you know, I hope you're not listening, but Matisse had a great eye for African art. It, it, it's really impeccable. Picasso, you know, he, he acquired things after he had painted more as kind of memorabilia. Uh, and and uh, not to say that in his own work he wasn't really transformative, but I think that, that um, there is a sense of some people really able to discern the richness of whether it's sculpture or painting in a way that some others can. And in a certain sense it's acquired Sort of like, I guess, gymnastic skills if you're a kid, and some people do very well at it, and some people, you kind of do a cartwheel, and, and that's as far as you're going to get. Akili, anything to add? Uh, well, I'm just glad you brought up uh, two artists and their collecting practices, because I would say one of the guiding uh, tools for me in thinking about works that have uh, potential for enduring appeal is just following artists. What are, which artists? and which works of art are artists most excited about. So, yeah. All right, on that note, I think uh, I'd like to thank our panelists for such an engaging conversation. Thank you all for coming, and I hope you join us at the reception.